Hey friends, glad you've joined us on our podcast again, or if this is your first time, welcome. We uh, put all of our Sunday messages on here. Um, That's the only part of the worship service. So if you want to see the entire worship service, then go ahead and open up your Facebook or YouTube and you can find our live stream. But this is just the proclamation of the word from this last Sunday. We've been going through 1 Peter and chapter 5 was pretty short, so I did both chapters 4 and 5. Picks up on a lot of the same themes that uh, we'd been working on before, namely being willing to suffer unjustly for the name of Christ Jesus. Chapter 4 has a lot of uh, additional calls to holiness and what that looks like, and that's, that's I mean, I preach the full time. There's plenty of stuff in there, a lot of stuff that, um, you know, a lot of people I know, they read stuff like this and they just go, just, you know, boil it down for me. And the thing is, the particulars matter. And so there's a particular, for instance, that comes around where he says you got to be sober and alert. That's to be a way of life for Christians. And that shows up just a few other times in the New Testament, but it's pretty darn important. Um, and then the last chapter has some instructions for how elders are supposed to behave, how how different people in the church, and it it, it focuses on humility as well, which is a Christian virtue that, once again, people kind of skip over and say, ah, you know, give me something else. So this is focusing on basic Christian ethics, ethos, way of life, um, definitely worth paying attention to. So uh, I hope, you know, you're doing something that helps you focus, and um, I, I, don't know, I hope this makes a big difference in your spiritual life. I, every, every word of Scripture is, is really important. Uh, But these words are pretty important. So, anyway, bless you as you attend upon God's Word. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. We're going to finish 1 Peter today. We're going to be covering chapters 4 and 5. And then we're going to welcome some new members into the church, and then we're all going to eat together, and it's going to be really nice. It's going to be a really nice time together. I'm so glad to share it with you all. There are a number of things I could say today, um, but I've already said them in the, the chapters leading up to this. 1 Peter has been uniform in its advocacy that Christians should receive uh, bad treatment, even though they don't deserve it. That's kind of what I was talking to the kids about just now. The reality of life is that we live in an unjust world that loves the darkness and hates the light. It hated Jesus, killed Jesus for who he is, what he stood for. The world's going to hate us. We don't stand up for ourselves. We don't defend ourselves. Jesus said, do not resist an evildoer. You remember that in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not resist an evildoer. When someone strikes your cheek, you give them the other cheek to strike as well. When they demand your coat, take off your shirt, give it to them as well. When they demand you go one mile, you go another as well. Why? Because we're just these pitiful weaklings? No, it's because we are strong in Christ and there is nothing they can do to harm us. When you have that confidence, then you don't have that urge to make everything right, to stand up for everything, to to shut down the evildoers, to raise up the ones we think are the good guys. That's how the world lives. But there's no justice in the world, and there never was. 
I know that people want to hold on to the notions that we can fix this world. We can build the kingdom. First Peter gives up on that, says you give up on that. We're going to suffer. Just accept it. Why? Because we have a God who is faithful, who is prepared a place for us. He will reward the faithful, and oh boy, is he going to punish the wicked better than we ever could. And when you believe in God's justice, then you don't feel the need to execute your own justice. That's what 1 Peter's been about so far. It talked about slaves. It talked about women. It talked about how all of us are called to be submissive and obedient as much as we're able, so long as we can still follow Jesus. It's a very countercultural, otherworldly, unnatural message we've gotten so far. Most, most everybody has received it, but hardly anybody has liked it. And to be honest with you, I don't like it. I naturally want to stand up for myself. I naturally want to punch guys in the face that have it coming to them. When I see it happen, oh boy, do I take pleasure in it. But that's not the Christian part of me, and God help me. I need to be the kind of man who, like Jesus, loves, prayed for, died for the people who killed him. So, chapter 4 picks up on these themes, and we're going to see those themes interwoven in some new content as well. Y'all ready? You're not convincing me. Are y'all ready? Okay. Chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to the word of God. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So you see how it's connecting us to Jesus? If we are in Christ, then we live and die as Christ lived and died, right? We have that same attitude, that same mind that was in Christ, right? And then it provides this helpful litmus test to determine if you and I are in Christ. It says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, the only reason to come to Christ is when you hate your sin and you've given up on yourself and fighting it, right? It's Christ alone who has the power to conquer sin through his atoning blood on the cross. When we hate our sin, we turn to Christ. Now, how do I know if I'm in Christ? Am I willing to suffer in the body for him? I'll read it again. Whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Well, am I really done with sin? Am I really in Christ? Well, am I, am I willing to suffer in the body? How, how, how can I determine if I'm willing to suffer in the body? I, can, I shouldn't hurt myself on purpose. Well, something I'll give to you guys. Was it pleasant to get here this morning, walking outside? Okay, so you're willing to suffer in the body to that degree. Good for you. There's a lot of people who just said, nope, I'm staying in today, and you weren't one of them. Good for you. What about fasting? I think fasting is an excellent spiritual discipline. Remember, Paul said those of the world who are not in Christ, it says their God is the belly, right? And that means figuratively, but also literally. There are a lot of people who, hey, if I have to have hunger, count me out. I need my food. Well, no, it's good to go forego food for some times out of reverence for Christ. Fasting is a great test. Am I willing to go through this pain? If you've ever fasted, you know, yeah, you get hunger, pangs. Pang and pain sound similar for a reason, I think. Um, also, there's this thing called tribulation, persecution, martyrdom. These are things that Christians around the world deal with every day. These are things that might lie in our future. Am I willing to suffer bodily for my faith? Or am I going to be one of these that as soon as a gun is against my head, I'm renouncing Jesus and recanting my faith? Prepare for that. You need a faith that maintains when your body is at stake. Do not fear those who can destroy your body and do nothing to your soul. Fear only him 
who can destroy your body and cast your soul into hell. I know I quote that all the time. It's because it's important. Verse 2. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. He's talking about the saints. They don't live their lives like pagans, like worldly people. Christians live differently. Our concern is not what other people are doing. Our concern is what is God's will? How has he told me how to live? That's how I live my life now. Verse 3. For you have spent enough time. When He's saying you. It should be y'all. But they don't have Oki Bibles. So, For y'all have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. You know, you know how selfish a lot of people are? They go, well, I never went to an orgy, so I'm not that bad. That is not the point of this passage. If you did any of these, if you're inclined towards any of these directions, you are in bad shape. All of these are part of a family of lifestyle choices aimed at momentary pleasure that discount you from eternal salvation. Christians are people who value the eternal more than the momentary. And we understand that our lives are not to be spent here in pleasure and diversions and distractions and fun. Our lives are to be, it's going to say here in a little bit, sober and alert. And that sounds lame to some people. Those people are damned. They are condemned. If that doesn't sound good to you, then you don't understand what salvation is. Salvation is the joy of being sober and alert. Because God gave us these wonderful brains, these wonderful minds, these wonderful lives that we, the more we engage in them, we discover more about God and how he made us. When we're spending our time being distracted, well, we can't appreciate that, can we? That doesn't inform who we are. We'll we'll come back to that, I think. Verse 4, the pagans, the bad ones, the, the people who are not born again in Christ, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Now, this gets political. And you know that I don't shy away from political, but also I, I don't dive right into it headlong. I, I, I don't want someone's political loyalties precluding them from listening to me. But there are a lot of people who see the right to have whatever pleasure they want as something that they are entitled to, and they hate anyone who warns them about that, namely Christians. There's an entire political movement. There is a huge groundswell of support for people whose primary identity is, this is what I like. This is what gives me pleasure. This is what I I am drawn to. And if you don't affirm me, then I hate you. And that's of this world. That's evil. Christians are not here to be liked. We are here to warn this world that is passing away. We are a priestly people trying to save people out of the darkness. If they shame us into being quiet, I mean, nobody here wants to be hated, do you? We're not sociopaths. We want to be loved, but we desire God's love more than man's love. And that means we stand against this age where identity is centered around who we desire sexually, and we say, nope, that's not what makes us who we are. I'm not a heterosexual man. That's not what I identify as. I identify as a child of God. 
That is my, if my primary identity is not in Christ, if my primary identity is in some lifestyle, something I love, you know, and that applies to lots of other things. You know, I get concerned about people who are more cowboy than Christian or more biker than Christian or more American than Christian. This happens in a lot of other ways, and we have to say, nope, God comes first. Everything else is a distant second. And if anything in distant second comes between me and God, then guess what? It's got to go. Because there is a clear uh, uh, biblical injunction to holiness before all things. I'm not bending politics to fit into the Bible. The Bible readily lends itself to our culture today. And the only pastors who don't say that are people who are compromised by the world. And there's a lot of them. And Andy Stanley was carrying the banner for, for fervent Christianity for a long time. Just this last week, he stopped towing the line. He, he openly gave in to the world. A lot of the banner carriers for Christ over the last century have given into the world either for love of money or love of politics or love of people. We Christians are motivated only by love of God. And out of that love of God, we know how to love one another rightly. But until we love God, our love for one another is corrupt, messed up, perverted, only and ever. I didn't preach this hard in Delaware. You lucky dogs, you got some hard preaching today. <laughs> Verse 5, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now, I did go into this in Delaware, and I think this has to do with first Enoch, how Jesus, whenever he descended to the dead, he, he witnessed against the spirits that had rebelled against God, but he also delivered the gospel to people in the realm of the dead. There's a legend of, it's called the harrowing of hell, how Jesus actually busted people out of hell whenever he uh, busted out himself. So that part's not in the Bible, so I'm not going to dive into it a whole lot here, but that's the only thing that makes sense out of these passages for me. We just don't have time for it. But if you want to talk to me about it, um, I exist the other six days of the week, and you can call me. So let's go on. Verse 7. The end of all things are near, is near. Therefore, here's what I told you about, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Those things are connected. Alert, sober, praying. Some people do their best praying when they're drunk. That is not a good thing. Alert, sober prayer. Above all, love each other deeply, each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that quite a quote? We should love each other deeply. Why? Because my love can help cover your sin. I think that's the clear implication here. We live in a very individualistic age where it's just me and Jesus. If I'm going to be saved, it's just me and him. I have no use for you guys. If that's the case, what's the purpose of the church? Why did Christ build his church? The whole thing is our faith is interconnected. When I'm not doing well, neither are you. When you're doing well, so am I. That, the biblical language is uh, we bear each other's burdens. We rejoice in each other's blessings. And when we love one another, our love has power to cover sins. So if you love me, then that will have an effect on the sin in my life. Your willing choice to love as Christ loves removes the power of sin in other people's lives. So if you want sin to be beaten back, 
Love is Christ loved. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. A lot of people, a lot of people, see, we got wonderful people showing hospitality right now in the kitchen. We're in here worshiping, sitting in our nice heated room. They're up, moving around. And in some churches, not this one, in some churches you'll have people in the kitchen just complaining and grumbling about, oh, so-and-so, she always brings that dish. Oh, that pastor, he's just droning on and on about the same. Oh, people, they get together, they like grumbling. Not ours. Ours love each other, and they love us, and they're happily serving. When we go in there and we thank them in a little bit, they're going to just, oh, don't even worry about it. And no part of them is grumbling in their hearts. And that's just a metaphor. We, in our daily lives, are called to show hospitality, not just to one another, but to our neighbors, to our community. Great litmus test for that is, how often do you have people in your home? How often do you serve people food? Have your neighbors over for dinner? Have you offered to babysit your neighbor's kids whenever they're pulling their hair out? You know, these are signs of hospitality, and can you do that without grumbling? That's a good test. Verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Have you been given anything good by God? It's not for you. It's not yours. It's to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, a steward is not an owner. A steward is someone entrusted with someone else's stuff. That's really hard for me. I got four kids I am super possessive of, but they're not my kids. They're the Lord's. I used to feel sorry for Joseph, Mary's husband, because Jesus wasn't his biological child. Well, I got four biological children. They aren't mine. Any more than Jesus belonged to Joseph. They belong to the Lord. I have been stewarded with their care. This is hard for me. I get possessive. I feel like they are mine. It's a lie. Everything good I have, my wife, my job, my house, my churches, none of this is mine. This is all God's. And I have to answer to him for how I've stewarded his stuff, his people. And you're exactly the same. Everything good you have that you feel like you earned, you didn't. It's God's. And it's not to be used for you. It's to be used for the good of others. Got a couple head nods. But a lot of people are looking at me going, I don't know. It feels like it's mine, Jeffrey. Pray on that. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. All of you speak on a daily basis, don't you? None of us carries the weight of, would God say this? That is one of the most disturbing scriptures in the Bible, and we just go, go right over it. But we should be more concerned about what we're saying, don't you think? That's why James warns us about the power of the tongue. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I don't think anyone would disagree with that or have a problem with that, so let's go on. Dear friends, verse 12, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's talking about persecution now. And it's in the context of Christians who some of them are being burned alive for the faith. So when he's using this, this term, fiery trials, this is summoning mental images that Christians would have in seeing their fellow believers burned alive. And he's saying, don't be surprised at that, as though something unforeseen came along. Christ warned us that we would be punished, tortured, hated like him. And even if we're not being burned alive, if we're being killed in various other ways, tortured, persecuted, 
Don't be surprised we were warned this is coming. Why on earth would we stick with Jesus whenever there is such a high price to pay? Because the reward is so much higher. It is the best long-term investment. And I know people get angry about economics being applied to our faith, but it's, it is what it is. We have a short, hard time here on earth and an eternal blessing forever. But if we're not willing to go through the short, hard time, we're warned in various places we should not expect that eternal blessing. So he's saying, hey, when these trials come, don't be surprised. Christ tried to prepare you for this. He said everything to get you ready. We've already talked about the importance of suffering bodily for the faith. You were warned. You were told to count the cost. This was part of the cost. When it comes, don't be surprised. Don't go, How could this happen? Of course it happens. When they did that to Jesus, why would we think we'd be treated any better? Verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So when you suffer in Christ, you're not suffering alone. You're suffering right up there on the cross with Jesus. And if you are where Jesus is, that's the most blessed place to be in the universe. Amen? Amen. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, that's saying if someone's insulting you, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's saying these eternal blessings are already on you. When you suffer with Christ Jesus, when he's glorified, you will be too. When he is seen, you will see him as he is. It's also saying that the glory of God rests on you when you suffer in Christ Jesus. The world is going to see you as despicable, nasty. God is going to see you as beautiful, as his son is beautiful. Can you imagine God looking at me and saying, that's beautiful. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Okay? So what he's condemning here, there are some people, I know none of you are like this, but they're like the ones who had the orgies in their list and, and they're like, oh, at least I haven't done that, so I'm not so bad. There are people who are legalistic and they're trying to twist words. There are some people who read this and they go, well, if suffering is good, I'm just going to go kill my neighbor who I hate and they'll put me in jail and I'll suffer in jail and Jesus will be happy with me. And it's saying that's not how this works. You should not suffer for doing evil things. You shouldn't be doing evil things. But you should suffer for Jesus here. However, if you suffer as a Christian... Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. What name is it talking about? The name of Christ, the name of Jesus. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. You heard me say that in the prayer earlier. God's household is going to be judged first. Those who are faithful to eternal glory, those within the church who are unfaithful, and there are many, to eternal damnation, followed by the rest of the world's judgment. And if it begins with us, God's eternal judgment, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So we're starting with the church, and then what's going to happen to people outside of the church? Well, verse 18, and if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Remember, Jesus said, wide is the gate and easy the road that leads to damnation, and there are many who find it and walk it. But narrow the gate and difficult the road that leads to salvation, and very few find it. Verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So it's once again that New Testament theme, persevere, endure, keep going, withstand. All right, chapter 5 is going to go by more quickly. To the elders among you, elders are the leaders of the church. They were oftentimes the, the oldest men in the group if they were serious believers and they weren't new believers. Um, 
I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. So he's instructing people in my position. But it's important for you all to know my job description, right? Anytime you're in a work environment, you need to know the job descriptions of everybody you're working with. That's a good way to know how we work together. Why, why should I do this? Why should elders do this? Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. I, I read John Wesley's comments on this this morning, and in this section he railed against preachers who left one church and went to another because they, they paid a higher salary. He said, Can you, he said, this should not be a normal thing, and yet it's the most normal thing in this culture. And as his culture, so today. We, there are pastors making six figures a year, and nobody bats an eye at that. It's a scandal. Now, I live very comfortably. I probably live a little too comfortably, and thanks for the raise you gave me this year. If you didn't know, you gave me one. It's great. Um, but even so, I need to be tithing enough. I need to be, well, and just so you know, and I'm not doing this to brag, Sarah Beth and I tithe more than 10%, not just to the church, but to many nonprofits, Christian nonprofits that do good work around the world. And if you ever want to know about those nonprofits and how you can spend your money in other ways outside of the church, I'd love to talk about that, but not from the pulpit. But the thing is, leaders in the church should not be in it to get rich. And a great way to make sure they're not in it to get rich is to not pay them tons of money. So if in the future I forget myself and go, hey, I need to be making 120 k a year now, guys, you need to lovingly say, hey, we love you, but no. And if I don't receive that, if I just insist that I need lots of money, then it might be time for you to look for a new pastor because you need someone who can model that freedom from mammon. All right, um, verse 3, uh, still talking about elders. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So if I ever start throwing my weight around going, well, I'm the pastor here and you do as I say, well, it's time for you to look for another pastor, isn't it? And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And if you don't know what, how important crowns are, uh, read Revelation. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, when I was a young man, I did not like that particular passage. But now that I'm getting older, I kind of like it more and more. So, uh, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Prideful people don't like that one. Uh, if you have pride, there isn't room for salvation in your life. Be humble. Because God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. So humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Gee, that's the second time we've heard that. Do you think that's important? Be alert and of sober mind. Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion waking, looking for someone to devour. He wants to eat you. And he's smarter than you. He's stronger than you. He's better than you in all the ways. You can't outsmart him. You can't outwork him. The only thing you can do is cling to Jesus who far outclasses him in every way. Jesus and Satan are not co-equal. Uh, Satan and Gabriel, maybe. Jesus is up here. Satan cannot, cannot pose a, a threat to you when you're in Christ Jesus. 
Be alert of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, he wants to eat you and he will. If you fall asleep, if you put down your guard, if you start relaxing, he's going to get you. That's the clear inference here. Many of us have been gotten by Satan before. Some of us here are in Satan's clutches right now and we're going, uh, he's got me. I got to get out of this. The only thing you can do is cling to Jesus. You can't do it on your own. Verse 9, resist him, standing firm in the faith of Jesus Christ, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. We've heard this kind of stuff from Paul before. We feel exceptional, like, oh, I've got it so rough, nobody's got it rougher than me. That's not true. That's a lie from the evil one. There's nothing you can go through that Jesus hasn't gone through that millions of other believers aren't going through. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered just a little while, it's talking about in this life, this is a short span compared to eternity, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Who wants that? Who wants to be strong in the Lord, firm and steadfast? Who wants God to restore you? So it's saying, persevere in the midst of this time of tribulation. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you. And Remember, this is a letter, right? This is something that he wrote down in ancient Koine Greek, sent on a scroll to this church. I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. That's that perseverance, endurance thing. Stand fast. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. I have no idea who the one who is in Babylon. In the King James Version, he says the church that's in Babylon. That would be figuratively just the Christians that are not at home in this world. Uh, that's, that's using Old Testament imagery. If it's saying she's, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, so I should have studied that more. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Does, that, does he mean that literally? Did ancient Christians actually kiss one another? They did. But I'm probably not going to kiss you guys. <laughs> I just... <laughs> It's so weird to me. I just, I need to get over it. You know, I, I've been talking to all these Africans, and I'm sure one day I'm going to meet one of them, and they're going to kiss me, and I'm just going to be like, I am an American, sir. I just, <laughs> but I need to get over that because I need to more, be more Christian than American. A Christian, uh, kiss each other, greet one another with a kiss. I got to get over it, guys. So uh, I, how about this? I will get over it first with my wife, and then <laughs> go on. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's how the book ends. First Peter is a hard book, had a hard message. That probably means we need to think on it more, don't, don't you think? I find that the most unpleasant things are often the most important things, the things that have the most to teach me. So just let me encourage you. We're going to go on to Second Peter next week. There's going to be some stuff in common. There's going to be some things different. I don't want you to put this down now that we're moving on. I want it to be something that we're all carrying with us in our Christian lives and our shared lives together. Otherwise, uh, we get kind of screwed up if we don't.